I used to drive all over town for low prices, but now I let Walmart's incredible new Savings Catcher do the work for me. I just enter my Walmart receipt online and Savings Catcher does the rest. It compares the prices I paid for items at Walmart with advertised prices from other top stores in my area. And if Savings Catcher finds a lower advertised price, Walmart gives me the difference on an e-gift card. Now that's my kind of work. Introducing Savings Catcher from Walmart. Go to walmart.com slash savings catcher for details. Eligible items only. Restrictions apply. You're listening to the AfterBuzz TV Network. Now the largest new media platform on the web and your number one source for after-show entertainment. Very good, Gene From the AfterBuzz studios in Los Angeles, California, presented by Maria Menounos and streaming live thanks to Akamai Technologies, this is AfterBuzz TV. Hey guys, welcome into the Manhattan After Show right here on AfterBuzzTV.com. Season 1, Episode 3, entitled The Hive. So, of course, we've got to put some bees in the background. couple things of note. We've got a lot to talk about today. First things first, Marissa is out. She's out of town this week. We had some technical difficulties here at AfterBuzz. Everybody's still alive and around, so we're doing the show a little later than usual. I am the only host in studio today, so it's going to be me talking to myself for a while and me talking to you guys. That's okay. We will make it work. Marissa will be back next week. Everything will be normal. Glad that you guys could join us. And while I've got you alone, if you haven't already, please hit subscribe on iTunes iTunes, hit subscribe on YouTube. We really appreciate the comments and the ratings and everything so far. And we appreciate being a, a an AfterBuzz Top 10 show like we have been so far. So thank you guys for all the support. And let's jump right into it. A lot to talk about today on The Hive, a very applicable title. I enjoyed that a little bit. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But let's start with one big thing, and that is uh, Dunlavy, Private Dunlavy, or should I say now Private First Class, Dunlavy, the man who, of course, shot Sid Lau. The first interesting scene to note with him and the first interesting development is is uh, going swimming. Remember, Dunlavy was the guy who wanted to see action, wanted to be in the Pacific Theater. Uh, that didn't happen. He was stuck in Los Alamos in the Manhattan Project area. And then he shot Sid Lau. And today we, we open up the show with him, his first scene, being ordered to go swimming with Colonel Cox. Colonel Cox is swimming in the... I don't even know what you'd call it, kind of the hollowed-out ground that they've made into a swimming pool covered with rocks on the sides, a very makeshift swimming pool. But Dunleavy, Dunleavy swims out to the middle there, and Cox, I think unexpectedly for Dunleavy, promotes him. Dunleavy probably assumed he was going to be punished, assumed he was going to have whatever happened to him. And sure enough, Cox says, you're now a private first class. You've been promoted to E3 is the designation. Uh, and you, quote, ensured the safety of the base. Now, I want to hear from you guys on this, so tweet us if you're watching, or comment on YouTube if you're watching this, either live stream or after the fact tomorrow or whatnot, and tell me if you think Dunleavy really ensured the safety of the base. I believe that Dunleavy, in killing Sid Lau, I'm sad to see Sid go, I'm not sure Sid was a spy, I think Sid got caught in a bad situation, but with all the facts that came out with that killing, that murder, I think Dunleavy did the right thing to kill Sid. Sid had a gun. Sid was reaching for it. Who knows what he would have done to the other MP uh, at the checkpoint there. And I think Dunleavy did ensure the safety of the base with what the army, what the military police knew at that point. So I was okay with Dunleavy's promotion. I was okay with Dunleavy being 
commended by Cox. The shady thing, of course, is Cox getting Dunleavy to lie a little bit and say that we found, you know, quote, classified materials in the floor mats. That's the shady thing here that that Cox is doing. And the reason that Cox wanted Dunleavy to swim out in the middle of the pool, because everything else in Los Alamos is bugged. Everybody can hear everything, as we'll soon learn with Abby. So it's important to have Dunleavy swim out where there are no witnesses. Cox can get him in a point where, uh, where where Cox sort of dictates how the story goes to Dunleavy, and that is what it is. An interesting idea with Dunleavy, and I know it's not going to come up because this is 19, you know, this is the 40s. This is late 30s, early 40s, far before the military knew about post-traumatic stress disorder, far before the military knew about a lot of mental issues and, and what whatnot that soldiers go through in war. Dunleavy is not at war, of course. He's on this base. But he still had a very traumatic experience shooting Sid Lau. And you can see Dunleavy struggling with it. He says later in the show, you know, that the, there's a priest on here, there's a preacher on here, but he's Baptist. So he doesn't do confessional, meaning Dunleavy's a Catholic. And he said, I did 20 Hail Marys for the death of Sid Lau, but I don't know if that's enough. And Dunleavy is very, very clearly struggling mentally, emotionally, psychologically with this murder, this this killing. I shouldn't call it a murder. Struggling with this killing, which you would expect— and, uh, and he needs a little bit more emotional support that he's going to end up getting. And I guess since it's just me today, I'll do predictions throughout the show to kind of keep it live. And I want to hear your predictions as we go. So tell me on this one. Let's predict what happens to Dunleavy together because I think that he's going to become a recurring character. And he should. I think his story is interesting. I think he represents young people in going to war in the 1940s. I think it's an interesting demographic that so far was unrepresented and we need him. And I think we're going to see him as he recurs on the show. We are going to see him struggle a lot emotionally with Sid Lau's death. Even though Dunleavy was justified in a lot of ways, that doesn't mean this didn't hit him hard. Because it clearly did. We see it in the scene with Meeks when Meeks punches him. Dunleavy never punches back. Meeks hits him three or four times. Dunleavy holds him down at one point, but never punches back. And we see a lot of different times with him going to Liza Winter, going to Frank Winter, going to their home, trying to apologize, trying to find out more about Sid Lau. We see that Dunleavy's struggling with this. And down the road in the next few episodes, I have a feeling he's going to come to terms with this in a negative way. I don't know if it means, you know, suicide or destructive behavior or, or desertion or who knows what else this could mean. It's a little too early to tell that, but he is not okay. Uh, he's too green to have done something like this. He needs emotional support that he's just not going to get in this time period from the military. They're not equipped to handle this at this point. And, and something unfortunate is going to befall him in the future. And I actually feel bad about him. I would be interested to hear your thoughts, guys. And I'll ask Marissa about this next week when she comes back. He's a very sympathetic character to me. I feel bad for him. I feel empathy for him. I personally think he did the right thing knowing what he knew in the Sid Lau situation. But I feel bad for him having to deal with this now. He's got to feel alone. He's also got to feel kind of used and kind of superficial because he walks into his barracks at one point in the uh, in the episode today and all the men are chanting for he's a jolly good fellow, assuming that he's killed a spy. And Dunleavy himself is quick to point out the man was Chinese, you know, and all the girls. There's a lot of girls who are noticing him, who are talking to him like he's a hero. And on the one hand, you'd almost want to say, hey, this is awesome. Let me let me bask in the glory a little bit. But he's, his head almost looks like you can see the wheels turning. It's like, this isn't glory. I killed somebody. 
you know, hero or not, spy or not, whatever this guy was, whatever Sid Lau was, I still took a human life. I took a human life of a man with a daughter, with a wife. Dunleavy may not know all that, and Liza didn't necessarily tell him all that. But Dunleavy took a life, and that doesn't mean that it's just hunky-dory because it might have been a spy. And I, I really believe we're going to see Dunleavy struggle down the road. Now, I commend him a lot, and I give him a lot of credit. He's, I believe, 19 years old, they said. He's clearly very young. I give him a lot of credit for having the guts to go to Frank Winter's house, to talk to Liza Winter, to talk to her in a very difficult scene, to talk to Frank in a very difficult scene. And I give Frank a lot of credit. Frank can be a bit of a hothead in a lot of situations. We'll talk about him in a second in a few other situations. But right now, Frank can be a bit of a hothead in a lot of ways. And when Dunleavy came to that house to talk about Sid, to ask about Sid, to apologize for doing it, Frank wasn't necessarily nice, and he shouldn't have been sweet and polite and kind, but Frank was polite enough, and he said, you have nothing to be sorry for, and just kind of shut him the door. And You know, the subtext of this line to me is, I can't talk to you, I'm hurting too much to talk to you, I don't want to talk to you, however, I don't necessarily think you personally did anything wrong. What Colonel Cox is doing is wrong. What the United States military is doing is wrong. The Federal Espionage Act is overreaching. But you, Private First Class Dunleavy, you're a victim in this too. And I see him as a victim. I think Frank sort of sees him as a victim. And Frank, rightfully so, is hurting very badly with the Sid Lau situation. But Frank, to his credit, doesn't take it out on Dunleavy. And Liza has quite a bit of empathy for Dunleavy when he comes to their home, the Winter House, and sort of says, this is who I am. This is why I'm here. This is what I want to know. Tell me what you know. And and Liza can't tell him a whole lot, unfortunately. And Frank doesn't tell him a whole lot. But he gets enough information. And it establishes somewhat of a, I don't want to say a resolution. It's certainly not resolved. But somewhat of a reconciliation between Dunleavy and the issue itself. Now, it remains to be seen how Dunleavy reconciles this in his own brain from here on out. And with his buddies, with his compatriots, because those guys are partying about this. Those guys are happy. They want a drink. Let's buy a drink for the hero. Let's buy a drink for the spy killer. There's sort of some undertones of racism, calling Sid Lau a Jap just because he's Asian. Not every Asian person is obviously Japanese. Sid Lau was Chinese. But at that time period, with who the Americans are fighting in World War II, it doesn't matter. It, it, it's it's a different time racially, and I think Dunleavy's a little sensitive to that. To his credit for a 19-year-old from, I think it was Jones County, Iowa, to his credit for having to do that, um, he clearly is a sympathetic character, and I think he's clearly going to have a very serious situation on his hands moving forward, and I feel bad for him. So prediction number one on the show with Private First Class Dunleavy whether it's suicide, depression, lashing out, you know, maybe other killings that are unjustified, um, poor performance in the military, something very negative is going to happen to him personally, and it may affect the security of the base, the safety of the scientists, the safety of the other MPs, because mentally, emotionally, and psychologically, he's not equipped to deal with what he's been dealing with with this Sid Lau case, and he doesn't really have anybody in his corner. Colonel Cox promoted him, treated it almost like You've been promoted. You're good now. We're done talking about it. Come work for me. You're good. Appreciate you. You know, what, what was the word I said earlier? I appreciate you ensuring the safety of the base. Now we're good. Come work for me. It's all hunky-dory. And in Dunleavy's mind, 
It is not. So that's the first prediction I have, and I want to hear from you guys. If you're watching on YouTube, comment below right now on Private First Class Dunlavy and tell me what you think about him, where we go with him going forward. Maybe he won't be a recurring character, and you think he was just kind of a guest star. I want to hear that too. But if you think he is going to recur, and we're going to see a lot more of him as he deals with Sid Lau, um, bring it out. I want to hear your thoughts on him, where he goes, and his relationship with not only Colonel Cox, but Frank Winter and all those guys who were so loyal to Sid Lau. Because Lord knows that Frank's team really, really, really struggled with the death of Sid Lau, and they're probably going to struggle it for a little while longer. Frank was struggling with it a lot. Well, again, we'll talk about him in a second. Um, but things are going to happen to Dunlavy in this whole situation. And I'll be interested to see what happens, and I'll be interested to have your feedback on YouTube or on Twitter. Before we transition over now to Frank and some of those guys, real quick live read for you. Walmart is thankfully one of our great sponsors. Obviously, we got to keep the lights on here at AfterBuzz, and we appreciate when corporations like to uh, partner with us on sponsorships and stuff. And Walmart has a very cool thing out. The Savings Catcher, brand new. Savings Catcher is the simple and easy way to save. No more driving all over town, searching through ads, clipping coupons, all that sort of stuff that, frankly, takes time. At Walmart, if you become a Savings Catcher, you can do all that literally with the snap of a finger. Here's what it is. Enter your Walmart receipt. So after you go shopping there, come home, enter the receipt online. And if any eligible item you purchased was advertised for a lower price at a different store in your area, Savings Catcher is going to give you a Walmart e-gift card for the difference. So you're going to make the money back anyways when you enter that receipt. You can do that online. I'll give you the website in a second. Or you can enter the receipt on the Walmart app. There is a Walmart app if you haven't downloaded it already. Savings Catcher then does all the work for you. You literally enter the receipt number, and that's it. Sounds like a guaranteed win to me. You get Walmart's everyday low prices, and you get the best advertised prices all over your area if it happens to not be Walmart. So start today with Savings Catcher. Go to walmart.com slash savings catcher, all one word, walmart.com slash savings catcher. Enter your receipt and get going with that. So big thank you to Walmart for doing that. Appreciate them doing that on a popular AfterBuzz show. I will say thank you guys at home for uh, making Manhattan a top 10 AfterBuzz show for the first couple weeks. We really appreciate it. Obviously, if Marissa were here, she'd be clapping along with me, but she'll be back next week. I know that we really love the support, and we're looking forward to it in the future. So thank you guys for doing that, too. All right, let's move right along to Frank. Now, we got a lot to talk about with Frank Winter, with Akeley and his team, with Charles, who's kind of the go-between right now, and with this whole shockwave study uh, idea. The first scene we open up in the entire episode is Frank looking at the failed test bomb that we went, you know, that went off last week and it didn't work. Um, and then the personal effects of Sid Lau show up. We've talked about Sid a little bit, but clearly Frank is struggling with this. Even outside of Dunlavy, Frank's having problems and he's really struggling with this. And we move on to the situation on base, which is going to affect Frank very much because the new army rules. The army is instituting new directives, random searches, no socializing off the base, and they pretty much flat out say, do not violate the Federal Espionage Act, which sounds horrifying to me, and it was in that time in World War II. Uh, side note, before I forget, I didn't want to do it this week because I knew Marissa was out, but when she's back next week, we're going to have some very cool pictures of what these camps of what these outposts look like in the 1940s. Not only Los Alamos in New Mexico, but another one in Clinton, Tennessee. There were a couple of these these Manhattan Project outposts around the country. We've got some really cool pictures, some really cool, I guess you'd say propaganda posters from the time period that we're going to show. So look forward to that next week. It's some, it's some cool history stuff with this. But I tie that in right now because 
the 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 title of the show the hive this is kind of where we start to learn the title the hive being the beehive where all the energy happens where all you know the bees are but also the hive being a very insular community everybody's buzzing everybody's talking everybody's interacting with each other and now they're trying to get a hold of that now the government and the army is trying to get a hold of the hive keep it insular and make sure people stop talking because Sid Lau almost made it off base whether or not he actually had the uh, classified materials in his floor mats is debatable, and Colonel Cox may be pulling someone's leg a little bit on that one. But we almost had a spy supposedly get off base, and it's time the Army tightens it up. And this is going to affect Frank very specifically because Frank's team obviously is already a bit rogue. They're already a bit off the beaten path, off the trail, kind of off the project, according to Oppenheimer, which we saw earlier. And Frank walks into his office, and not only is there tension about Sid – but we see tension when Frank looks into his files and everything that Sid Lau has been working on is gone. The army has come in at some point and taken it, which has got to be a very helpless feeling for Frank. He's got files openly missing. The shockwave analysis, the shockwave study is missing. The tamper design is missing. All gone. And Frank knows what's going on because anything Sid worked on is suspect now. But this really, really hurts the team. And Frank makes it very clear very quickly that they need the shockwave study in order to move forward with what they have on the what's going to become the atomic bomb. Akeley's team, on the other hand, has all that information and is not sharing and is not permitted to share because Frank cannot actually go in to where Akeley's team works anymore due to classifications and badge restrictions and these new Federal Espionage Act restrictions that the Army has tightened down on Los Alamos. Frank can't get in anymore. And he mentions it in a scene to a guard. I came in every day for months. I can't come in now. The guard says, get a new badge. Frank says, well, that'll take months. So here's some meal rations. And Frank sort of cuts a backroom deal to see Charlie. But nevertheless, the noose, the, 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 the screws, I guess, have been tightening on Frank and on his team. And a team full of outsiders to begin with is already further and further outside than they were 10 minutes ago. And it's difficult, especially considering they truly believe they have what it takes to make the A-bomb. Um, at this point, we can sort of bring Charles into the story because him and Frank have an interesting, if not very tense, relationship. And they have for the first three episodes, and they'll certainly continue to have it in the future. But we see Charles and Frank debating kind of uh, uh when when charles comes out to see frank about the shockwave study frank tries to ask him and says get me the shockwave study charles says no of course and there's sort of a lot of tension there because a frank is not very nice to charles charles says some horrible things about frank again with with this sort of old man dinosaur talk and whatever and and you can see the tension between the two of them and i think you can see a bridge being burned i know marissa and i very early on in the first and second episode, predicted that Frank and Charles were going to come together and work together, I still think long-term that prediction will hold. I think Charles will move over to Frank's team long-term because Frank is the smartest guy in the room, and if if he's the smartest, Charles is the second smartest, and they're both worlds above Akeley's team, and they're worlds above the rest of Frank's team. You know, no no insult meant by that. They're just the two smartest guys, and I think they'll hook up eventually. In the short-term... They've burned each other's bridges so hard, I can't see them reconciling in the next several episodes unless something huge happens, which it may. So that's a good prediction, I guess, that I want to hear from you guys. Another thing about Frank and Charles and if, when, and how they will ever get together to work. Because we see how smart Frank is, even though we know his team is not getting resources. We are led to believe he's very smart. We know he's very smart and he's very passionate. And we see 
quickly and explicitly how smart Charles is when he dresses down the rest of Akeley's team entirely. Akeley's team wants to go hang out and have sandwiches and whatever, and they've been working for months, six, seven days a week, and here are our equations, and we've been working whatever. And they sort of make fun of Charles for looking at his board instead of writing and working and whatnot and always working all night. And Charles then says a very interesting thing, which I really liked, and it can be applied to a lot of things in life. Physics is 90% talk or 90% thinking, 9% writing, 1% talking, and sort of makes a snide comment about the 1%. You know, you're the 1%. You guys talk all the time. I think 90%. I write 9% and I talk one. The guys sort of come back and criticize him. And I love this scene, maybe my favorite scene of the entire episode. Charles dresses them down. He fixes every single one of their equations while simultaneously talking to them, implying, of course, that what they're doing is not that difficult, fixes each equation on each board in about 10 seconds a pop, and he's there and he's done, and he sort of shows them up. Now, the guys are very embarrassed, as they should be. The guys are a little mortified that somebody would come in and do this, but this underscores the tension between Charles and the rest of Akeley's group. Akeley will later on ask for an apology. I can't help but wonder, though, and I'm curious to hear what you guys think at home, I can't help but wonder if Charles has burned those bridges too. His bridges are burned with Frank because they're so mad at each other right now, and they're so mean to each other right now, and they're definitely not going to work together tomorrow. But Charles now has embarrassed the rest of Akeley's team, and he's had kind of a contentious relationship with Akeley about the hazing and solving an impossible problem stuff. And and Akeley complimented him and said, Charles, you're the smartest guy I know. I brought you here for a reason. But there's still a bit of a contentious relationship there. So I wonder if Charles gets driven out of Akeley's team at some point in the future here and has nowhere to go, and Frank is the ultimate loner to begin with, and they'll hook up down the road. Until then, these two guys are very smart, very alone. Nobody understands them. Nobody gets them. Not necessarily that they're pretentious about it. I don't think either one is necessarily you know, overly cocky about how intelligent they are, but they both know that they're kind of lone wolves, which can be advantageous, but if they can find a way to work together down the road, I think you'll see a lot of progress between the two of them. Um The reason I mention it, though, is bottom line right now for purposes of this discussion, Charles is having some problems with the rest of Akeley's team. They've never gotten along. They see him as kind of a wonder kid who they don't necessarily like. And after today's shenanigans, dressing them down in in the uh, laboratory on the chalkboards, after that, I can't imagine Charles making too many more friends. Uh, His wife will, and we'll get to her in a second. But I can't imagine Charles making a whole lot more, a whole lot more friends. Um, Now... Back to Frank. That was sort of a side note on Charlie. I wanted to talk about kind of all the scientists in one thing. But back to Frank, and it's an important thing. <clears throat> Frank struggling not only with talking about Sid Lau, going through Sid Lau's personal effects, but the interesting, very, very risky plot twist in this week's episode of Frank stealing documents, stealing uh, uh, equations and whatever. It turned out to be for Epsom salts, which, you know, I think he says, you know, if Hitler steals this thing, he's going to get a really warm bath, which is kind of a Snyder mark. But stealing equations and purposely being caught, paying off a guard to get caught, paying off a military police officer to get caught so that he could get an audience with Colonel Cox, which is very risky, very dangerous, not the smartest thing ever. It underscores Frank's decision-making, his desperation, his fly-by-the-seat-of-the-pants kind of rogue attitude. It works to a certain extent because he gets his audience and Cox obviously doesn't 
<clears throat> excuse me, arrest him or interrogate him. That doesn't make it right or smart. It does work, though, and Frank ends up getting his audience with with uh, Colonel Cox. He's very clear about needing Akeley shockwave studies, which Cox does not give to him, uh, doesn't do anything like that to him. So Frank didn't necessarily succeed in that endeavor, but at least everyone knows. At least Colonel Cox knows where he stands. At least Charlie knows where he stands. And Frank has now proved to himself and his team, again, how important this is to him and what he's willing to do to do this and what he's willing to sacrifice to do this, which is everything else, wife included. Um, and then the interesting, I guess, last scene to talk about with Frank. Um, well, let me jump, excuse me, let me jump back real quick one thing because there is one important scene here, and that is Heisenberg. We get to know Werner Heisenberg, the German scientist, the only man apparently smarter than Charlie in the world when it comes to physics. Akeley says Charlie's the only man who can solve velocity distribution, hence why Akeley gave Charlie the equation, except Werner Heisenberg is a guy who can solve velocity distribution. That is the one you compete with, which... As a guy, as a sports fan, this is where I'm going to really start getting into this show. Personally, I know as a sports fan, Marissa's going to agree. I'm sure a lot of you may too. The idea of competition, it's not enough just to find the science. It's not enough just to get the bomb right and to use the bomb and win the war in that area of competition. It's also competing against the clock. Your scientists are competing against Japanese scientists who are competing against German and Italian scientists. And it is a race against the clock, literally for the fate of the world, and we, of course, know who wins in history, but it's an interesting and cool thing to see, you know, Charlie put up Heisenberg's picture on one of his chalkboards, literally be so tired from working, he falls asleep in front of one of his chalkboards, after which Frank gives him the right equation, which is an interesting thing, but it's a cool, it's a cool thing to start thinking about the competition, and I'm interested and very excited to see how, <clears throat> excuse me, to see how global this story will get from here. Will we ever see Heisenberg? Will we ever see the Germans? I don't know. Will we Will we be told of their exploits through media or whatever? Lord knows. But I'm interested to see how global this story gets, and I'm glad they brought up Heisenberg. Uh, it's going to be an interesting thing with him. I think that's obviously kind of a Breaking Bad reference, too, for you guys who, who watch that, and, and maybe a nod a little bit to them, but it is historical, so they have to talk about Heisenberg, and they have to do that. Um, now, back to Frank. The one thing I wanted to, to hit on before I went back backwards, excuse me. The last interesting scene with Frank, and this is a great character development scene, is him sitting outside alone, Liza coming up to him, his wife coming up to him, noticing he's outside alone and working and not, you know, or, or at, at home and not working. And Frank openly reminiscing about Sid Lau and the six years he's known him. And, you know, six years ago out of college, I gave him a job. He had a terrible haircut. I think that's one thing he said. You know, he's the first person I gave a job to. He had a terrible haircut. And then he was the first call of the handpicked team here at Los Alamos. So to be the first call of a handpicked team... I think you've got to be two things. You've got to be very talented at what you do, which Sid Lau and all those people are, of course. But you've also got to be very, very likable if you're the first call. You're the first guy Frank thinks of. Frank says, I want to work with this person. I like this person. I respect this person. That's obviously him and Sid Lau. And so Sid Lau's death is weighing very, very heavily on Frank. And I know that to a certain extent, Frank feels guilty about it because he talked to Liza about it. She told him, you know, you didn't bring this on him. This, 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 you had no idea this was going to happen, you know, more or less. Uh, you can't blame yourself for this. But I know that Frank does. He wears everything on his sleeve and he wears everything very deep in his heart. And I know he blames himself 
for Sid's death to a certain extent. Uh, and, and maybe that he didn't do enough to, to get Sid out with the whole army enlisting in the army, whatever. Um, and it's an interesting kind of a sad scene to see Frank reminiscing on losing somebody because Frank thus far on the show in the first two episodes has been obsessed with death <clears throat> from a broad numbers perspective. X thousand American soldiers die every year. You know, whatever dozen American soldiers are dying every single day on the front lines. And it's important, and that's a significant thing, but it's a number. You know, whatever the number was, I don't remember the number, but if he's saying, you know, 50 American soldiers a day, whatever that number was, 50 American soldiers a day are dying on the front lines. That's a serious thing, and it's sad, and it hurts Frank, but it's still just a number. Sid Lau is one person, one human person that personally affected Frank. This has become even more personal now. And if you thought the number 50 weighed on him, wait until you see one person who very clearly affected him. I don't know who the quote is attributed to. I've heard it attributed to several people, so I won't quote it. But there's a very famous quote in history that the death of one person is a tragedy. The death of a million is a statistic. Very morbid quote, (laughs) not necessarily true, but it's that same idea that when Frank looks at the number of Americans dead and the number of people dead, and you just look at the number, you remove yourself from it emotionally. It's a number. It's a stat. It's a goal to stop happening. When you look at Sid Loud dead because of something Frank may have done or may not have done, that's personal, and that's even deeper, and that's even more significant. And Frank has broken down in this episode. He's going to keep breaking down from this. Just like Dunlavey, Frank is obviously not done dealing with this. Having to see Sid's body in ice is probably even more complicated and horrifying for him, like he did near the end of the show when Colonel Cox took him in. Um, This is very personal for Frank. And this is kind of, I think, in a weird way, this is when war comes to his doorstep. He's been working on the war for years, but this is when war comes to his doorstep. And in a weird way, I hope I'm not overreading this, I think he's kind of in a little bit, a little bit of a way on the front lines with this one. He had, you know, a, a compatriot die. I know they're not soldiers. I know it's nothing like actually fighting on the front lines. But to Frank a little bit, I think it is. I think it's a little bit of a, you know, a, a fellow soldier dying in a way. We were a band of brothers. We were working on this thing together. Sid didn't make it. It's on me. And I'm guilty about that. And that's a tough thing Frank's going to have to deal with. And um, it ends up okay for him, at least in this episode. We see at the very end when uh, when Paul is writing a letter to Sid's wife, coincidentally, that never actually gets mailed. We see at the end that Frank redoes the bomb test, and it works because Frank broke into Akeley's offices, did something he should not have done. He may get in significant trouble for that in the future, but thus far... The bomb test worked, the redo worked, so at least something good happened to Frank. He sees Sid's ghost at the end, which I thought about this for a lot. Obviously, we were supposed to do the show in the afternoon. It got delayed a few hours for technical difficulties. In the meantime, I thought a lot about what Sid's ghost meant for Frank. If it's haunting, if it's reassuring, if it's closure, it could be closure that Sid was there to watch the test and then walked away. And I don't know if I'm ready to speculate on it yet. Maybe I'll talk about it next week with uh, with Marissa because I think it can be read a lot of different ways. So as we close out on Frank and these guys, before we jump to Abby, I guess that's the question I want to ask you guys at home. The final scene when Frank redoes the bomb test and it works <clears throat> and Sid Lau's ghost shows up, what do you think Sid Lau's ghost represents? Is it 
closure, Sid Lau saying you did it, it's going to be okay, you know, whatever he said. Is it haunting that Frank will be haunted by Sid Lau's ghost forever? Is it reassuring that Sid Lau's ghost or spirit is there to say, I'm with you still, I'm on the team, I'm still here, I support you? Is it, you know, a guilt trip to, to say, you know, you didn't do enough for me and I'm going to, I guess it's more haunting, I'm going to haunt you forever. I guess I, I'm interested to see what you guys think about the meaning behind having Sid Lau's ghost there and what it means to Frank Winter. So again, if you're watching on YouTube, comment below. If you're listening on iTunes, get on YouTube, search Manhattan Season 1, Episode 3 uh, here at AfterBuzz. And send us a comment. You can always tweet me, too. I'll give out my Twitter right now. And at the end, I'm at Bobby DeMuro, by the way. I'll say that again at the end. Um, but I'm interested to hear what you guys think about that. So let's move on to uh, to Abby and them. Before we move on to Abby, and I'm glad I mentioned it now about Twitter and iTunes and all that good stuff. If you guys haven't yet, since this is a new show, this is episode three of the very first season of Manhattan. Um Subscribe to us on iTunes. Give us a rating if you like it. Hopefully you don't hate it. But if you like it, give us a good rating. Give us some comments. We read your feedback. We use your feedback. I know this show is a little bit different because it's just me. We usually have two or three or four on the panel. This is not typical for us, so I apologize for having a one-person discussion. It's difficult to have a discussion with one person. But thank you for bearing it out with me, and next week we'll be back to normal. So rate us comment on us we'd love to hear your feedback i would love to hear what you guys think of our after show and really some other stories that you want to talk about and storylines you want to talk about with manhattan because we're doing this for you so whether it's on itunes or youtube or whatever do that talk to us believe me we read everything and i mean that in a good way we really want to hear from you guys all right speaking of hearing from you guys Abby is doing a good bit of hearing herself. Abby Isaacs is doing a uh, a hell of a job being the NSA or being the CIA uh, equivalent in the 1940s when she ends up and goes to the uh, the switchboard. Abby says early on, you know, with the girls when they're hanging out washing cars or watching the guys wash cars, she says, "Well, I don't I don't know how to do anything. You know, I, I'm not good at anything. I haven't been trained." And the girls are kind of like, "Well, you can listen." And um that's pretty much all Abby's doing <laughs> is listening. I love her job. It's it's weird. It's creepy. It's it's might be illegal. I understand it's wartime, but civil liberties have to exist to a certain extent. But I understand why it gets done. It's interesting to see it. And we've got Abby and her friend Elodie, her her French friend, which will be interesting to see why you have this very French woman in the middle of New Mexico and Los Alamos during the Manhattan Project and. I assume we're going to see her backstory and why she got there and why she she is there and what she's doing. But we see Abby uh, pretty much listening into every phone conversation on the base. And if a phone call leaves the base to go anywhere else, it gets picked up, it gets intercepted, and these women sit in this operating room, you know, this this operator's room, whatever, and uh, they listen in. And they have kind of a, a booklet of key terms. And I think it's an awesome... <clears throat> to a certain extent, it's, I think it's a little bit of a jab at maybe the NSA and the CIA today. And I think that's part of what makes Manhattan a good show is they, they – they, yes, this is a historical account of a true historical event. And they're so far playing it pretty close to the actual history in a lot of ways. But at the same time, it's also got to have a universal truth to it. And the NSA, the CIA, this wiretapping, this this you know privacy issue that's been going on for a few years, whatever side politically you fall on, it's an interesting news story uh, with technology in the recent couple of years. It's good to see them sort of wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Let's acknowledge this in the 1940s way. Let's have Abby do some wiretapping. She's not the smartest. God love her. I have nothing wrong with her. She's not the most intelligent. 
She's not dumb. She's not an idiot. But she is not the most intelligent woman. So let's have Abby do this. She kind of accidentally sort of falls in backwards to doing, you know, whatever, uh, wiretapping-wise. And let's sort of poke fun at the NSA a little bit. I thought it was great. I thought it was funny. I can't wait to see where she goes with that uh, – uh, with with this job and with whatever. Um, and it'll be interesting to see with her two things. <clears throat> the first of which is uh, when you talk how do I how do I put it this way? <laughs> when you are prone to spreading rumors, and I know we've all certainly done it, Lord knows I have, um, when you're prone to spreading rumors, you don't typically stop that habit unless you work really hard, you acknowledge you have the problem and you decide you're not going to spread rumors anymore. It's just a personality thing, I think. And you kind of grow out of it. Abby has already been spreading rumors and stuff. When she was at the party, I guess, in the first episode, and she sort of dropped the radar thing and realized she had gone too far with the other women. She spread some rumors there that she probably shouldn't have. She spread some secrets. And now you've got Abby, who's shown to have some loose lips, who's shown to talk to her husband, Charlie, about more than they should be talking about. You've got Abby learning some very sensitive information. And it's not just phone sex, the funny scene where she's listing in on phone sex. There's going to be serious stuff here. And you've got Abby, who's in charge of that serious stuff, and keeps it in her brain. And guess what? Sooner or later, it's going to come out. Whether it comes out to Charlie, whether it comes out to the other women, whether it comes out in a letter home. We've seen how letters get intercepted already. If it comes out in a letter home and she is kicked out of the base, she's arrested on the Federal Espionage Act, who knows? But it's going to come out with her because loose lips sink ships, as they say. And Abby has proven to not have the tightest lips, no pun intended, um, not have the tightest uh, 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 speech pattern, I guess, on uh, on the show so far. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with her with that. The second interesting Abby thing to look forward to, I guess, is that lie detector test. Now, <clears throat> I know they're suspicious and I know that they're very concerned about – uh, you know, uh, spies and overthrowing the government. So pretty much any employee on this base is probably going to get a lie detector test like Abby got and get questions like, have you ever led or been a part of an organization dedicated to the overthrow, of, the violent overthrow of the United States government? I assume that's a standard question at this time and in this place. The interesting questions, and this is when we learn more about Abby, are the questions about have you ever been accused of a felony or arrested for a crime, arrested for a felony? And she's like, oh, you know, I, I, I stole my music teacher's car, my piano teacher's car, but it was a misunderstanding. Okay. I'd like to know more about that because Abby apparently has a history. And then the second question, the big meatball hanging out there ready to drop is the have you had sexual relations with a man outside of your marriage, whether it's an affair or before or whatever. And Abby said no. But I think her body language said yes, and that's probably something we can hopefully all agree on. She took 15 seconds to answer. She started sweating and crying, and she barely got no out. So I got to believe there's a story there. <clears throat> I can't wait to find out what it is. I know that we will. Uh, but Abby is not as, see as she seems. She seems like the great housewife, the go-getter, you know, whatever. Um, such is not the case. Her and Charlie seem to have a very healthy relationship. They're clearly very physically attracted. They clearly communicate very well. But, you know, under the surface, I, I suppose there are troubled waters and troubled times ahead. So we're going to have to see about Abby with that. Uh, those are kind of my two points to look forward with her. Uh, and who knows? I can't wait to see those two things. I'll be interested to see what you guys think. I guess we can kind of predict with that in a way. Um, 
yeah, I mean, it'd all be speculation, but that's what predictions are. So let's do that. Let's go to predictions right now here on Manhattan. And now, you're after Buzz TV. Predictions. All right, nothing quite like talking for about 35 straight minutes. Lord knows I've talked for quite a lot longer than 35 straight before. Uh, I can do the stin on my head, guys, especially about Manhattan. Um, predictions. I'm going to make a couple tonight. I know I've already talked about a few. Dunlavy, this ordeal is not over for him. Whether Meeks beats him up again or whatever, whether Meeks does something maybe more severe to him, or whether Dunlavy does something self-destructive because he's in such a way in his head psychologically – this is not over for uh, for private first class Dunlavy. The second prediction that I'll make right now is uh, <clears throat> excuse me is Frank and Charlie. And short term, there's no way those two guys can work together. They keep deepening and deepening and deepening the wounds that they've given to each other. It's not going to heal overnight. I know these are men, and it maybe is a little simpler of a healing than whatever. It's still not going to wound, uh, or, or it's still not going to heal overnight. These guys take their jobs personally, and they're too insulting to each other to work together tomorrow. In the short run, no way. In the long run, in my humble opinion, the two smartest guys on the base are Charlie and Frank, and I think that's pretty clear. And I think that those two guys will realize that they have to get together to literally save humanity, save the world from catastrophic war, to end this war, to create the A-bomb that, as Frank said, I believe I have the quote, um, to end all war forever, which obviously doesn't happen, and it's kind of a dumb thing for him to say, and overly idealistic, but I think Frank actually believes that, and I think both him and Charlie actually believe that. And in the long run, I think those two are dumb enough and smart enough, if that makes sense. They're smart enough to realize they have the skills, and they're dumb enough to be idealistic enough to do it. But they are dumb enough and smart enough to get together and and to make this A-bomb. And I think Akeley gets left behind. I think Frank Frank's team may come along for the ride because those guys are smart and valuable. But I think at the end of the day... It's it's the dynamic duo that's been fighting but is soon going to reconcile Frank and Charlie. Something's going to obviously have to bring them together, but I think it's pretty obvious that those two are going to have to get together because there just is no one else. Uh, last prediction, Abby's in big trouble. I know I just talked about this a minute ago. A loose lips sink ships, and Abby is a talker, and she is a little too immature for this. She's not ready, I don't think, for wartime in Los Alamos in this restrictive community. The Federal Espionage Act is not a joke. The military police is not taking this as a joke, and Abby is not ready for what's going to come. And whatever the phone conversation is that she hears, whatever the situation is that she comes across, something's going to happen with her. And she is going to get in big, big trouble. And it remains to be seen if she drags Charlie down with her, if she drags uh, Elodie down with her, her new friend. Who knows? But Abby is – the trouble's only just beginning for Abby now that she got a job. So we'll see what happens to her. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, and I want to hear from you guys. So any predictions, any uh, comments and reactions to this week's show, obviously get on YouTube, get in the comment section. I know I mentioned it before. Or get on Twitter. Uh, social media-wise, I am at Bobby Demuro on Twitter. I am at Mr. Bobby Demuro on Instagram. And while I'm here alone, I guess I should say I just released a documentary, you guys. It is called Skid Row Tuesdays. Uh, you can find that on YouTube, too. So if you go Skid Row Tuesdays on YouTube, you can find that there. That's it this week on Manhattan. Um, we'll see you next week. Marissa will be back like normal. Thank you for indulging me alone this week, and uh, see you next Monday. Bye, guys.
from executive producers Maria Manunos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire AfterBuzz TV staff, we would like to thank you for listening to the AfterBuzz TV network. To watch or listen to other after shows and post comments or questions, be sure to visit AfterBuzzTV.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of AfterBuzz TV. See you later. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principals. This after show is brought to you by Walmart's Savings Catcher. Walmart's new Savings Catcher is the simple and easy way to save. Just go to walmart.com slash savings catcher to enter your receipt.